USBI show. Hello everybody, I'm Ivis Kolarsep and I'm coming to you from Las Vegas where the US men's national team defeated Mexico once again to win another trophy and make it a clean sweep dos a cero in the championship finals department this summer. Your reigning CONCACAF Gold Cup champions are the Americans after the 1-0 victory at Allegiant Stadium and it was Miles Robinson scoring the game winner and I have to tell you in terms of the history of this rivalry this is right up there with one of the bigger more meaningful more important results I gotta say because just everything that went into this game and the idea of Mexico being the favorite understandably the US being an inexperienced team and what happens Greg Berhalter sends that team out gets them to buy in and they fought Mexico tooth and nail and look credit to Mexico credit Tata Martino his team did create chances but they couldn't put him away and the US continued to fight and eventually they took control in the second half and really took it to Mexico and you could tell for me right around halftime as soon as the halftime whistle blew you kind of got that sense that Mexico realized that they were in for a fight because I have a feeling they went into this game believing that their quality would win out and that they would just be able to outplay this American team. And in some ways, you can say they did. You can say, look, they they had the better chances. Matt Turner came up with some big saves, no question. When it came down to it, they couldn't put any chances away. And once it got to halftime, that Mexican team realized, "Uh uh-oh, this is not going to be easy. All this time, we thought this, this U.S. team was vulnerable young and experienced and and, and you're going to show its uh, its lack of, of big game experience as a group. And guess what? That group responded. And what a second half. Very, very, for me, an impressive second half because they just continued to take it to Mexico. They continued to press Mexico. And they started to find some chances even. And one of the lasting images for me is Greg Berhalter kind of pleading with his team to press and press and keep the pressure on Mexico. Get, trying to get them to crumble. And look, we've seen Mexico before in these situations when the going gets tough. We've seen Mexican teams crumble before. And that's pretty much what we saw on this day. And look, they didn't crumble in the sense that they got blown out. But you saw them fade. The Mexico team in the second half was not the same as the Mexico team in the first half. And the Mexico team in overtime, I mean, talk about a ghost of a team. They were holding on to get to penalties as much as you, you kind of wonder how that would have gone if it, if it went to penalties. But there's so much praise to go around because this is a big win. This is a huge win for the, for the U.S. men's national team program to go two for two, win two trophies, including this Gold Cup that really they weren't expected to win. I still remember when the rosters came out. And understandably, when you saw the rosters, you're like, well, the good news is that there's going to be some young players getting experience. The bad news is it's going to be really tough to beat this Mexico team when you looked at at the roster that Tato Martino selected. Irving Lozano, even though he got hurt in the first game. Hector Herrera. Edson Alvarez. I mean, Rogelio Funes Mori. I mean, they, they brought a really good team. Tecatito Corona. They brought, they brought a squad. Consider the fact that seven starters 
from the Nations League final were in the lineup for Mexico on Sunday night. And they still couldn't get it done. They still couldn't get it done. Full credit to Greg Berhalter and full credit to this U.S. team. And there's so many players that I kind of want to point to. And you know you have to start with Miles Robinson, who, for my money, should have been named the player of the tournament. I mean, I think it's pretty crazy. And the only person who was even really in contention with him for that is Matt Turner. And Miles Robinson, for his, with his consistency all tournament, playing at a supremely high level defensively all tournament, so reliable. And then for him to, in the final, step up, play great again, and deliver the winning goal. I mean, you could not have drawn up a more perfect tournament. for from. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about defenders, American defenders, having excellent tournaments. I mean, one that comes to mind is, is John Brooks in Copa America, Centenario. He was outstanding. But I got to tell you. I think Miles Robinson might have trumped that, might have put together the best tournament we've seen in the, for an American defender in so long. And I tell you what, I just want to see what happens next with him because obviously, look, he goes back to Atlanta United. I'm sure Atlanta United isn't in a hurry to let him go. They're not in a hurry to sell him. But I have to think European clubs, when they watch, if they watch this Gold Cup, and I know you see European scouts who are watching the Gold Cup, how do you not look at Miles Robinson and say, we want that guy? He's that guy, pal. He's that guy. Because for me, I think his game, his skills, his skill set translates to any league. Put him in any league and he will deliver. Put him in any league, he can start. So we'll see. We'll see where he ends up. But right now, he's, he's got a winner's medal and probably a starting position for the U.S. in World Cup qualifying. And I know this, there's going to continue to still be questions about who who are the center backs. Who will be next to John Brooks? Because John Brooks is your starter. He's number one. He's You lock him in. He's the first choice. But who do you partner with him in Miles Robinson? I mean, when I think about John Brooks, Miles Robinson as a pairing, I mean, the passing, the aerial dominance, the Robinson speed, John Brooks intelligence and positioning, I mean, they really could be an unbelievable pairing. And, and that's to take nothing away from the likes of Chris Richards, Mark McKenzie, James Sands, who's put his name in the ring now. But I want to see Brooks and Robinson against El Salvador in that first game in World Cup qualifying. Because I think we, that's that's what you got to see, to be completely honest. No offense to Chris Richards, who anyone listens to the show knows. I've been on the Chris Richards bandwagon for a long time. And I still think he eventually will be a starting center back for the U.S. But for right now, Miles Robinson is your guy. And then you have Matt Turner, who, you know, it's, it was no, it's no shock to me. And I don't think any shock to anyone who's really followed MLS closely, especially New England. How he's grown and how he's the level he's played at for two years now as a goalkeeper in MLS. I mean, psh, no one should be that surprised, but. Clearly, a lot of people who didn't know are now aware just how good he is. And the scary thing is that he is only going to get better. Because he is young in, 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 the ter- in terms of the amount of t- years that he's actually played the position. He is still learning. We had him on the show. We had him on the SBI show, I want to say a month ago, maybe more. 
And he laid it out, you know. It's like he, he total years as a goalkeeper. He doesn't have that many. So he's just kind of tapping the surface of an unbelievable amount of potential. And it's not just potential. He can play now. I mean, did he have a couple of kind of hiccups in possession? Is he the strongest on the ball in terms of distribution? You could you could nitpick and say, yeah, he's not. He's not the sharpest passer. No. But shot stopping, confidence to go up for challenges, he does it all already and will only get better. Penalty kick saves, I mean, he gives it, he gives you what you need. So that's why people are already talking about who is the starter when the full team comes together. Is he now challenging Zach Steffen? And I'll be completely honest right now, I still don't think he's taking out Zach Steffen. For me, Zach Steffen is still number one. And yes, you can definitely ask questions about the fact that will Zach Steffen be getting games for Manchester City? And probably not, other than cup competitions. And is that enough? And is that enough to keep him in the starting role when you have a goalkeeper like Matt Turner who's playing week in and week out on a, one of the best teams in MLS in New England? And don't forget Ethan Horvath, who's made a move to England and could potentially play his way into a starting role in England. And if, once, if he does that with Nottingham Forest and he's a starter, he is also in the conversation. Don't forget him. It's only been a month when he was the hero in the Nations League final. We can't forget Ethan Horvath. But let's give Matt Turner his credit because he is in that conversation right now. And he's earned that and he deserves it because he's that good and he's shown it. He showed it over and over and over in the Gold Cup. And the third big standout, not only in the final, and the third big standout, not only in the final, but throughout the tournament, especially after he was moved into the defensive midfield role, is Kellen Acosta. And let's talk about Acosta because he he's such a great story when you think about the fact that he was pretty young when he was already kind of being anointed as a special midfielder bright future, potential European transfer target, potential starter for the national team. He was at FC Dallas. He was doing his thing. He was, you know, sky was the limit for this kid. And who knows what happened? Maybe he got distracted. Maybe he got a little too anxious to go to Europe and it, it affected his play in MLS. And when Europe didn't happen, you know, he, he lost his way a bit. He ends up going to Colorado and definitely reclaims recaptures his form credit to Robin Frazier and credit to the Rapids because they helped him regain his best and I still remember last year last season and I said it you saw a player who's really shining you saw a player who's really kind of coming into his own and and, and looking like the player we used to think he could be you know however many years ago and this tournament in this gold cup Acosta showed us that player again he was everywhere. When you want to talk about in the, in the final, I mean, he made so many plays all over the field. And I got to say, I was a little surprised and impressed with how many people called for him to be player of the tournament or how many people came away believing he was the player of the tournament. And I, I you know what? I think he's he, you put him on best 11. I think he could be on best 11 for sure. But let's not forget that he started a bit slowly first couple of games. And part of that, again, he was playing in a more advanced role. Once he moved to defensive midfielder, though, 
I mean, he was unbelievable. He was elite level. And I think he's helped put to bed the questions about who is the backup to Tyler Adams. Who is, who is the backup to Tyler Adams? And I know that might sound like a little, you know, backhanded compliment about Acosta. And, you know, oh, well, he can't be the starter. Like, look, Tyler Adams is an elite world-class caliber de- uh, midfielder. He is your starter when he's healthy and available. Problem is, the problem with Adams is he's gotten, gotten hurt quite a bit. So it's good. You need somebody you can count on if Adams isn't available. And not only that, let's not forget, in September, the U.S. plays three qualifiers in the window. There's no way, even healthy, that a Tyler Adams is going to play all three of those games. I mean, he could. I'm sure he could if he had to. But if you're Greg Berhalter, you do not want to play any of your guys in, or start any of your guys in all three games, 90 minutes, if you can help it. Which is part of the reason this whole Gold Cup experiment happened, is to find players to help build up the player pool, to help build up the depth, to find players you can count on to start if you need them to start. And guess what? Berhalter found a few of those guys, quite a few. So he should absolutely be feeling pretty good about his options for World Cup qualifying. And Kellen Acosta is one of those. And Kellen Acosta, for me, is going to start at least one World Cup qualifier. Start him against Canada. Perfect example. You break up the three games. He plays the middle game. Have Tyler Adams play the two games on the road. Perfect scenario. And bring Acosta on the bench, off the bench when you need him in the other games. But Acosta definitely showed enough in his Gold Cup to let everybody know he can be counted on in the big games, in the big moments. And he's played Mexico before. He's played Mexico in World Cup qualifying. And he played against Mexico in the Nations League. So he's a guy that he he's already shown he will not shy away in a big moment, in a big game against a big opponent. So, I mean, for me, hats off to him. Unbelievable performance, an unbelievable tournament for Colin Acosta. And now we have to talk about Greg Berhalter and the Gold Cup final and the decisions that he made heading into the game. His starting lineup, there were a few surprises. One, The one real surprise, for me at least, was George Bello. Because I thought Sam Vines had done well for himself, but I thought Sam Vines had done well for himself, but I understood it once the lineup came out. You think about the speed Mexico has on the wings... And one, George Bello definitely gives you that speed option. And then when you watch Bello play, I mean, think about it. he had only played the one game in the tournament. He played against Martinique, or st- only started one game against Martinique. It was okay. Not a great game. But in the final, when you want to talk about a teenager, 19 years old, in a final against Mexico, and their attackers, they're the killers that they have in their attack, and he did not blink. I mean, I came, I gotta say, I came away really impressed with George Bello. As much as all, you know, Robinson and Turner and Acosta, you know, they all played great, but they've been playing great. So no surprises there. So if you wanna say who was the biggest surprise on Sunday, I gotta go George Bello. Because he stepped up, took the job, took the starting role, and just went after it and was one of the best players for me for the United States in that final. So, I mean, phew. 
where does he go now? Obviously, there's talk about, there's rumors about Galatasaray. There's definitely European interest. And why wouldn't there be? You're talking about a 19-year-old speedy left back who's shown he can play at a big stage? Pfft. Name the price. And that's the problem now, right? If you're Atlanta United, you have Miles Robinson, George Bello, two players coming off out, you know, coming off the type of performances that are going to have clubs lining up to make offers, European clubs. Can you really sell both? Because then you're kind of pretty much writing off the season. It hasn't been a great season, obviously, to begin with, and you're already looking at a new manager. Can you afford to sell both? And that's gonna that that one bears watching because obviously it's gonna be up to the players when they want to move. For me, ideally, I think Robinson. The feeling I get is Robinson, someone who's more likely to move in the winter. Like I just don't get the sense that Atlanta is ready to let him go in the in the middle of the season. Bello is a little different because I think Bello they could. They could make do with with selling Bello and, and having their other options left back now. But Miles Robinson, he's not a piece you're going to replace very easily at all. You know what I mean? So he, I think if you had to ask me who I'm putting my money on getting sold, it's Bello, not Robinson. Although Robinson's time's coming. A year from now, he he for my money he has to be in Europe. And then when you know when the World Cup comes around, if and when the U.S. qualifies and they're in the World Cup, Miles Robinson will be playing in a big league. Like I just I don't see how he won't be. But Burhalter makes the George Bello decision, and he starts Eric Williamson. And while it you know on the surface yes a surprise sure, but if you listen to the last episode, you heard me say. I would start Eric Williamson because I thought he provided the edge, the strength on the ball to, come, to, to do battle with that Mexican midfield. And credit to Greg Berhalter, he did it. He didn't do it because he heard it on the show. I can promise you that. But, you know, great minds think alike. And he gave Williamson the chance. And Williamson did well with it. He held his own. He was getting mixed up. Every, every time he turned around, you saw him, you know, getting mixed up with a Mexican midfielder. Even got kicked in the head, which somehow didn't draw a red card, shockingly enough. But I like what I saw from Williamson. I mean, he did he get enough of the ball? I mean, you could definitely ask, ask some questions there. But look, they were playing a very, 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 very good Mexican midfield. Hector Herrera, Edson Alvarez, Jonathan DeSantos. I mean, top, top-notch midfield. So for them to do what they were able to do in terms of containing that midfield... They deserve credit for that, and Williamson deserves credit for that, for him stepping up. Now, he had already shown well coming off the bench, but it was great to see him grasp the opportunity, and it was great to see Berhalter give him that opportunity because I had already heard and kind of seen suggestions like, oh, maybe he doesn't really rate Williamson, and obviously the whole thing with Williamson not being part of Olympic qualifying, which for me I still say was a joke, and I've said that so many times, including back then. But water under the bridge at this point. Let's focus on the now. And right now, Eric Williamson's stock for me has to go up. When you're talking box-to-box midfielders, potentially players who could help you if you need depth as a defensive midfielder, and a player who potentially could get a call in World Cup qualifying, and here's why. Gianluca Busio had his growing pains in the Gold Cup, number one. As talented as he is, and as much as he showed well coming off the bench in the final, he was big in the overtime. 
but he's expected to make the move to Venezia. That move's going to happen, right? And there's no, there's no guarantee that he is going to start for Venezia. Not right away. So if Busi is not playing for Venezia, and he spends the month of August really just chilling on the bench or you know completing his transfer and all that, are you really going to bring him in to qualify ahead of players who are playing? And Williamson is going to go back to Portland and be a key figure for the Timbers, as he already was and has been. So if you look at that, then you're and also consider Yunus Musa suffering the injury that he suffered that is looking like it will cost him a, a spot in World Cup qualifying, assuming he was even ready to play in World Cup qualifying, because at this point, as you know, he is not cap-tied yet. And it remains to be seen if he is ready to be cap-tied. But at this point, it's moot because he's injured. So Williamson absolutely could have the opportunity to get in there and get, be part of that World Cup qualifying squad. It's something to think about. So Berhalter, he makes those two decisions in the lineup. And obviously, look, Jossie's artist. He started Jossie's artist. There was, there was no mystery there. I think at this point, everyone had kind of, not everyone, but most people agreed. It was time to put him in the lineup. Time to sit down with DK. And Sardis didn't score a goal, but he was everywhere. I mean, it, it doesn't, it, he doesn't get enough credit for the defensive work that he does and the pressing all over the field that he does. And a big thing for that, that he provided in the final was an outlet for Matt Turner, James Sands, to send long passes for him to, to, to win, for him to win the duels, and for them to relieve pressure. And if you remember that U.S.-Mexico friendly in New Jersey, the 3-0 was smacking that Mexico put on the U.S. In that game, the U.S. tried to play from the play out of the back and tried to do, you know, the ideals of what Berhalter wants to do. But what we saw in this final was him being pragmatic and practical and understanding, look, we need to re- we're going to re- need to relieve pressure. We're going to need Matt Turner to boot some balls up the field. And we have Jesse's artist to win some of those. And he did that. He did a great job. Great job with the pressing. He was, for me, I, I, he put in a performance that definitely puts him in that conversation to be a starter in World Cup qualifying. Now, is he the number one striker in the pool? No. My money is still on Josh Sargent. I still say Josh Sargent is the number one striker in the pool right now. But Jossie's artist, with his performance in the Gold Cup final, reminded everybody that he, if you put him in, he's giving you an honest, hardworking shift that will give you a positive impact. Will he always score a goal? No. But will he make things happen? Yes. He does it every time. And as much as he gets so much flack and as much as there's so many, you know, so many U.S. fans who've been down on him for so long, Hopefully now with this Gold Cup, a few people have kind of realized, you know what? He gives you everything he's got. And more and more, he's being an impact and positive presence at Stryker. So great to see him kind of show himself and really, you know, hopefully win some people over and hopefully convert some people who've been down on him for so long. And in, and just in terms of the game overall, look, Mexico had more chances. They had more of the ball as they should with the squad that they have. But I loved the, I loved the way the U.S. responded in the second half and overtime because they played to win 
over time, they were the ones forcing the issue. They were the ones who looked more likely to find a winner. And they did. And credit Kellen Acosta with the beautiful, beautiful service. And Miles Robinson with the excellent header. And now the U.S. has a second trophy. And they won it in a sold-out Allegiant Stadium, which I tell you, beautiful building. Great crowd. 90% Mexican crowd. Pro-Mexico crowd. And it didn't matter. And I do want to give some credit and say that in terms of the atmosphere, in terms of kind of the hostility of the rivalry and all that, it was actually a pretty well-behaved crowd. And I know that there were some instances, again, of the homophobic chant, which you hate to see it every time. But it just, the vibe in that stadium was a lot more positive than I've seen in past, in past U.S.-Mexico games, even just as recently as the Nations League. That Nations League crowd in Denver was a mess, as you remember, with them throwing stuff on the field and just the overall kind of, there was a negativity there. And we've seen that before in this rivalry. But in Vegas, it was different. It was, And look, maybe because it's in Vegas, it's a little more, you know, everyone's a little chill, you know. Weed is legal. But I think it was good to see, and I think it helped the, the, the actual tone of the match itself. And you kind of wonder which is first. Is it the tone of the match helping the crowd or, is it, or vice versa? But look, this in terms of the match, it was probably one of the more well-behaved finals. You didn't get any choking, any uh, <laughs> hands to the throat. Obviously, Berhalter called that out, so everyone was kind of on, on eggshells about it. But, well, other than Hector Herrera's cleats to the head of Eric Williamson, it was a pretty clean game. I would say that. And you love to see that. You want to see the rivalry just played out. Respect. Hard fought. None of the trash talking. None of the none of the dirtiness. You don't want any of that. So it's great to see that. I, I did enjoy that part of the whole thing. Because I thought it was a great game. Great final. Well played final. And now the U.S. has bragging rights. And the U.S., you know, as much as it's two games and as much as you could argue, oh, well, Mexico played better. Guess what? U.S. has the trophies. So for me, that, that should signify they have bragging rights now in CONCACAF. And whether you want to accept that or not now, you can rest assured that it's only going to get better for the U.S. Because their generation of players, the Pulisics, the Reynas, the McKinneys, the Adams, the Sargents, the Dests, the Steffens, the Weyas, Sargents, Hoppies, they're all just getting better. They're all young, still young, relatively speaking, young. Yunus Musa, once he gets capped on. So it and you know Mexico, they're pretty much what they are. They're peaking now, and I know you could say, look, they're having a pretty good showing at the Olympics. That's all well and good, but I've already explained what the Olympics is about. That's not a really a good barometer in terms of the talent of of a t- of a country. And I don't know how many of those players on that Olympic team, other than obviously Memo Ochoa, are going to step in and be a starter for the full-strength Mexico team. I mean, some of them have have promising futures. I shouldn't say they don't, because there is talent on that Olympic team, to be clear. But when you look at when you stack it up and you look at all the talent the U.S. has, young talent that's playing in prominent places, on very good teams, and establishing themselves as important players. I mean, that's all, all. That's only going to get better for the U.S. So 
Mexico missed their chance. I got to say, when it comes down to it, Mexico missed their chance to reassert themselves in the rivalry. Because by all accounts, they should have won both these finals. In turn, when you just kind of look at it on paper, Nations League final, two very good teams. But Mexico had the clear experience edge. But they didn't get it done. Now fast forward to the Gold Cup final. Same thing. Experience edge, clearly. Look at the quality. Hector Herrera, Edson Alvarez, Tecatito Corona. High-level players. They couldn't get it done. So credit to the U.S., and I don't, I just, I have a feeling it's going to be a good while. And not to jinx it, but I have a feeling it's going to be a good while before we see Mexico celebrate a trophy win against the U.S. I think we're going to see a few more U.S. trophy celebrations in the near future. I got I got a feeling. Which isn't great news for Tata Martino, by the way. I mean, that guy. I mean, when you saw his face in the postgame, he, in the postgame press conference, he looked like death. And he's not in a good spot right now because we know how Mexico is. We know how their fans are, how their media are. They'll chew you up and spit you out if you're the head coach, especially if you're not a Mexican head coach. Does that mean Tata's getting fired? I wouldn't say that. I think he has enough of a reputation that he's going to be able to kind of navigate this. And look, World Cup qualifying is in a month. You're not going to fire Tata Martino a month before qualifying. That's crazy. Even for Mexico, that would be crazy. But the pressure's on. The pressure's on Tato Martino, and you know what? He he should have delivered more. Plain and simple. He deser- he takes the blame for this one. He has to take the blame for this one because he had the horses, he had the players, and he didn't get it done. And for me, my big takeaway from that is, and I mentioned it on Twitter, you had a lot of people who bought into the whole idea of Tata Martino as U.S. coach. And Tata Martino could have been and should have been the U.S. coach. Tata Martino wanted the job. We heard this. But right now, looks to me like Greg Berhalter's got the edge on Tata. He's got the advantage. And no, I'm not saying Greg is a better coach than Tata. Berhalter himself said just a few days ago that if he has half the career of Tata Martino, he'll be happy. So nobody's slandering Tata Martino and saying he's a bad coach. He's an excellent coach. But for the people who've been crying about Tata Martino not being the U.S. coach, I mean, right now, it's maybe time to put that away. It's maybe time to get over it. And again, I know some people still aren't going to get over it, as I've seen on Twitter, and I've seen there's still people holding out. As I said last episode, there there are going to be never Berhalter's. Never halters, I think someone on Twitter suggested, but never Berhalters. Now, we'll say a lot of people were, were won over. I saw it on Twitter, and I was, I, was, I was liking the tweets that I saw that where people actually were willing to acknowledge, you know what, Greg Berhalter won me over. I didn't believe in Berhalter. I was, I was a never Berhalter. But you beat Mexico twice in the same summer. Win two trophies. I mean, at that point, yeah, you got me. And a lot of U.S. fans felt that way. So congrats to Greg Berhalter on the second championship and also on his birthday, by the way. How do you like that? Imagine that. What are the odds that the final falls on his birthday and they win it on his birthday? And by the way, how about Berhalter? We already know Berhalter's shoe game is something serious, but he rocked the undefeated Nike Dunks, the 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 blue ones, and they're they're beautiful, by the way. And I probably would have gotten them now, but now that he's got them, I, I probably won't get them. But I mean, they, he was looking pretty sharp. He was looking pretty sharp, 
And uh, that's going to kind of become one of the plot lines now from now on. Whenever the U.S. plays a big game, what sneakers will Berhalter wear? And I know, look, not everyone's into sneakers. Clearly, I'm a sneakerhead. People who know me know I'm a sneakerhead. But I got to say, I was pretty happy with seeing how many other people are sneakerheads. Because I, when I tweeted out that Berhalter was going to wear the undefeated dunks, the reaction was pretty good. And I love that. Because guess what? For all the people who said, this is the content I want. I want more sneaker content. You know what, folks? You're going to get it. I'm going to give you more sneaker content. Because why not? People love it. Clearly, there's that cross-section of soccer fans slash sneakerhead. Shout out to my beeps from Kicks to the Pitch. And now the only bad news is we have to wait a whole month for the U.S. to return to action. World Cup qualifying in September against El Salvador, Canada, and Honduras. A trio of qualifiers that should be very interesting. And I can't wait to see the lineups we see for the U.S. for those. But... We have a month, and uh, you know we'll see what happens in the next month. In other U.S. men's national team-related news, my man Doug McIntyre is reporting that David Ochoa, Real Salt Lake goalkeeper, is planning to file a one-time switch to play for Mexico. And I know we've been discussing this possibility for a few episodes now. And I got to say, I'm still shocked. I'm still surprised. Like, on one hand, I understand. Like, on one hand, I get how it happens. But on the other hand, I don't understand why it has to happen now. And that's the thing that's kind of driving me nuts is he's 20 years old. David Ochoa is 20 years old. Outstanding talent. Great prospect. But he's not ready to start for Mexico or the United States anytime soon. So where's the fire? What's the rush? Is it, you know, have you been promised a place in the World Cup team in 2022? Like, I, like, I don't get it. 20-year-old for a goalkeeper? I mean, that's embryonic. You are in the early stages of your career, buddy. And look, when it comes down to it, it's his decision. It's a personal decision. And if he feels in his heart that playing for Mexico just feels right and playing for the U.S. doesn't feel right, then that's a decision only he can make. It's a feeling only he can understand. So I'm not going to sit here and knock the guy. I'll tell you that right now. Because I could understand if he feels just more comfortable there now, regardless of whatever he might have said in the past. And I ha- like I. Right now, I'm still on the road. I'm still in Las Vegas, but I promise everybody I will find my interview with David Ochoa because I want to play his comments on USA Mexico because it's very interesting and they sound like someone who would never make the switch from US to Mexico. Now, obviously, something changed, and hopefully he'll share that in the coming days and weeks and months. Because look, it's just it's it's a little it's tough because you're talking about a goalkeeper who was a big part of the U20 World Cup team. Started in, he started in the U20 Concacaf Championship final against Mexico, beat Mexico. I remember going down to Florida. Actually, the last time I interviewed him was a U20 camp where they played Mexico and beat Mexico. I watched him beat Mexico, and at that point, you're like I never would have imagined. Him playing for Mexico. So here we are. Great prospect. 
And honestly, I don't think, and again, only he can answer this, and hopefully he will get into it in more detail. I really don't think this is about, oh, he likes his chances of playing for Mexico more than the U.S. I don't. I just don't think that's what's driving Ochoa. I feel like it's a much more personal issue, a much more personal decision. When you look at Ochoa's, you know, social media, and he's really embracing his his nationality, brown pride. He's big on on expressing himself in that regard. And then you're obviously seeing the the racism. He's been the target of some racism from from some whoever the people are. I mean, it's easy to just assume that they're U.S. fans, but whoever the people are, it's just disgusting. And you hope that that's not what's driving him to Mexico and away from the U.S. But it's, you know what, I wish him nothing but the best. He's a great kid, very promising talent. And it it will definitely be weird to see him in a Mexico uniform if and when the day comes that he's playing against the United States. That... That will be tough. But everyone has to make their decisions. It's his life, his career. He has to go where he feels comfortable. And I trust my man Doug that he has it, and that's what, what's happening. And if that's what's happening, then clearly he made that decision. Clearly he feels more comfortable. Now, hopefully for U.S. soccer, they they start to really kind of look at things and look at the Mexican-American player. The Mexican-American player pool. And no, I'm not just saying Latinos in general. Because look, right now the U.S., the, the team that just won the Gold Cup had Latino presence on it. Latinos on it. Paul Ariola, Kellen Acosta, Sebastian Lejet, Christian Roldan. But in terms of the Mexican-American contingent, when you talk about Julian, Julian Araujo, Ricardo Pepe, Alex Mendez, Ulianez, Richie Ledesma. If if we're if we're starting to see a trend where more of these players are starting to choose Mexico, then it, there it definitely is something to look at, something to think about, and talk about, and understand. Try to understand what's going on. Is it a case of players not feeling like welcome or embraced, or not feeling at home in the U.S. program? This is something to talk about. Especially if you see an exodus of, of top prospects. Right now, Ochoa's won. And yes, we saw, Ed, you know, we've already seen Efrain Alvarez make that decision. Who, by the way, he was there on Sunday and he got his second place medal. We all know the story of Jonathan Gonzalez. Who's not even in the picture right now for the Mexican national team setup. But if Ricardo Pepe, if Julian Araujo or any of the uh, Alex Mendez, if if these players start to make that shift and we start to see in numbers more, more Mexican Americans choose Mexico, there's going to, it's something to talk about. It absolutely is something U S soccer should look into and try to understand as much as everything's, everything's amazing right now. You're winning trophies, the depth, the, the player pool is is just stocked and overflowing, and more and more players are going to Europe. It's a, like everything's great. Everything's in that regard. Things are going really, really well. That doesn't mean that it isn't worth taking the time to see if something's going on here. It, it isn't that it, it shouldn't mean that it isn't worth looking into things and seeing if anything can be improved. 
because you don't want to lose this. You don't want to start losing several of these talented players who, by all accounts, should be playing for the U.S. Julian Araujo, super talented player. He's crushing it with the LA Galaxy right now. Ricardo Pepe, crushing it with FC Dallas. So we'll see. I know right now U.S. fans are like, well, look, we're, 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 we got the trophies. We, you know what? Come play for us. Like, whatever. If you don't want to play, whatever. We have other players. I get that. I get there's a, there's a confidence right now in the fan base. But I don't think U.S. soccer should get sucked into that and think that they can just ignore what could potentially be a problem. It's something to just keep tabs on. There should be an effort to try to communicate with some of these players. It can't just be, you know, take it or leave it just because you win a couple of trophies. And I'm not saying that's what's happening, but let's not let that happen. Have that conversation with Ricardo Pepe. Continue to have the lines of communications with Julian Araujo. Try to understand what's going on here. If if something is going on here. And Ochoa's decision, if he has made this decision, should make people stand up and say, okay, what's up? What's going on? Let's talk. I think it deserves that. Now, as, as great a night as Sunday night was for the U.S. men's national team, just a few hours after the, U, the men celebrated their Gold Cup victory, the women, the U.S. women's national team, suffered a shocking semifinal Olympic defeat against Canada. Canada team, they hadn't beaten, they hadn't lost to in, I want to, I want to say, 20 years. They hadn't lost to in like 30-something matches. A team full of players who never knew what it was like to, to lose to Canada. And they lost to Canada. In a match that, yes, you could say that they were the better team, they created the more the chances, but you didn't put your chances away and you paid the price. Alyssa Nair got injured. Obviously, that didn't help. When it comes down to it, there is no excuse. No excuse to lose that game. But when it, they just didn't play well. And this whole tournament, you had the feeling that there was something about this U.S. women's team. They weren't playing to their ability. As much talent as this team has is stacked with elite players. Like, it, it just, there was just no, they didn't play to that level. They, they didn't play the level against Sweden. They didn't play to that level against Australia. They stepped up when the pressure was on against the Netherlands and give them credit for that because the Dutch were a very, very, very good team. But against Canada, once again, it was kind of a struggle. It was it was a struggle. It was a if you're a champion, it shouldn't ha- it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this hard to get up for that. And I, I, to point out, it should be pointed out the history of the Olympic competition with World Cup winners. No World Cup, no women's World Cup winner has ever gone on to win the Olympics. And it's something interesting to consider why that is. And the U.S. has followed in that line. They won the World Cup two years ago. They couldn't win the Olympics. And it's obviously a devastating blow because as talented as this team is, you kind of just thought they have to do it. But you know what? There's something to be said for hunger. And these other teams are hungry and have been hungry to knock off the Americans. Sweden, you know, wanted to knock off the Americans. Canada, more than anybody, you know has been dying to knock off the Americans. And they did it. And now Canada's in the final, and credit to Canada. And I got to say, I'm rooting for Canada, because Christine St. Clair, she's a legend, and it'd be great to see her go off with a, with a gold medal. And no offense to Sweden. It's Canada-Sweden in the gold medal game. Nothing against Sweden, but Canada, I just, you know, keep it in CONCACAF, root for CONCACAF, right? No, but Canada, class team for years. Christine St. Clair, legend. 
I want to see Christine Sinclair win a gold medal. Maybe it's just me. But what happens for the U.S. now? Where do they go from here? Obviously, it's finally going to be time to say goodbye to a generation of players who have been so big, so important to the program. Carly Lloyd. I mean, the images of her doing her like post-game workout after they were eliminated. She was doing her sprints. I mean, she's such a she's such a warrior, such a warrior. She does Jersey proud. She's always done Jersey proud. But it's 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 time. I think her time's up as much as, you know what, she is She is the type of person who is, it's not going to be easy for her to let go. And I'm pretty sure she's still going to target the next tournament the world, with the World Cup in 2022. Is it 22 or 23? 23. 23. Two more years. I think she's going to push for it. As much as, she, you know, at her age, you know, she's getting, she's up there, she's getting up there. I mean, I'm older, so I can't, I can't really talk, but. At her age, she should be retiring. But she's she's a warrior, and she can still play. So we'll see. And Megan Rapinoe, similar situation. She's not, you know, she's a little younger, but you have to wonder, is she going to stick around for 2023? And when it comes down to it, there is a generation of young talent coming up that should be ready to step in. Tina Davidson's, Katarina Macario's, Sophie Smith's, Sophia Smith's. You have those players coming up. But here's the thing. The rest of the world is catching up. The rest of the world is starting to benefit now from the fact you're seeing more and more investment in women's club soccer. You're seeing the big European clubs start to build real teams, which means more opportunities for more players to play at a high level. So the U.S. Doesn't, is not going to have that market corner. They don't have that market corner anymore. Now you see other teams that are stacked with players that are playing at high levels. So for me, when you look when you look down the road, I mean, obviously you have Netherlands, you have Spain, you have France. Now you have Sweden that's in the mix. There's just going to be that much more competition. It's going to be that much tougher for the US women to stay on top. And I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you know, I know that obviously Vladko Andonovsky is going to get and has get, gotten and is getting a lot of flack for this performance. And you should. You're the coach. You take over the best team in the world and they have a flat tournament. You have questions to answer. You have to answer for that. But I don't think we're going to see a coaching change. I think he's going to still get his, his opportunity to, to, to guide them to the next World Cup. But he's got to figure it out. He's got to make some tough decisions, and maybe it will be time to say goodbye to some older players and really embrace the new generation. But it's a tough one. It's 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 gonna be just the idea that the U.S. Is, the U.S. women are playing a bronze medal game. It's a little uh, it's a little tough. It's a little tough. But hey, they still it's a medal. You you want to win it. You don't want to finish fourth. And they play Australia, the same team that they tied uh, in the group stage. So that's not going to be an easy one by any means because Australia wants a bronze medal. They'll be super happy with a bronze medal. And if the U.S. isn't careful, they're going to get knocked off again. So hopefully they can rebound, step up, and hopefully Carly Lloyd and hopefully Megan Rapinoe, they can go out with a big performance in what could be the last international tournament match for both of them. Up next, we have Americans Abroad, and Josh Sargent scores two goals for Werder Bremen 
and he's look he's playing in the German second division he should score goals and he is because he's he's better than that that level and I think it's fair to say he won't be there much longer because there's already multiple reports about teams lining up for his services and and one team that I saw that was linked to him is Bayer Leverkusen and that you can kind of trust as a legitimate legitimate link and Leverkusen would be a great landing spot for him and as much as people have kind of forgotten about him because you know you had the gold cup on everyone's mind this past month but He's still, for me, Josh Sargent's still the first-choice striker. And if he's continuing to play, continuing to score goals, that's only going to solidify that for me. I think if anything has changed in the past month, it's the, the, the realization that Lojasi's artist is number two right now. Daryl DK's time isn't here yet. You don't know what's up with Josie Altidore and, and where he is in terms of Greg Berhalter bringing him in now that he's playing again with TFC. Is he ready to, is Berhalter ready to bring Altidore back in? And he might. I know some people might say, oh, no, move on, get, you know, go with younger guys. But listen, you need to win these qualifiers. So whoever you think can do the job, you call in. It doesn't matter if they're 32, 33, 30. If they can do the job, you call them in. Like I've said before about Michael Bradley, although Michael Bradley, I at this point don't think is going to be a factor in September. You don't really need him right now if you have Tyler Adams and Kelton Acosta with Acosta playing at the level that he's playing. So anyone freaking out about the idea of Michael Bradley being part of qualifying, it's unlikely right now. But, hey, again, knock on wood that it doesn't happen. Injuries can always take place. In an emergency situation, when you think about the defensive midfield options in the pool, I've said it before, I'll say it again. They're not a ton. They're not a ton of viable options that you can trust. So the good news is Kellen Costa looks great. And he's the perf he's for me, he if you have Adams and you have Acosta, that's what you that's enough to get you through September and the September qualifiers. So I'm looking forward to seeing both of them. Another player who had a big performance in Europe is Christian Kappis, who scored his first goal for Bronby uh in a draw. And I know some people have already forgotten about Kappas and or maybe, you know, don't even know much about Christian Kappas. But, you know, I had a chance to sit down with him and he's a very mature and intelligent player. And I've heard nothing but good things about him as a player in terms of his profile as a box to box player, someone who could potentially also play in a deeper role. If he can get some consistent playing time at Bronby, he's not starting yet. He's coming off the bench. But if he can win a starting job at Bronby, all of a sudden you have another option in the midfield. And you need them. You need as many central midfield options as you can as you can handle. There's never too you can never have too many when it comes down to it. And now we're gonna wrap things up with MLS. And the, listen, this past weekend it was an impressive, impressive schedule of matches. And as much as the Gold Cup overshadowed everything, as much as the Olympics overshadowed everything, MLS delivered. The MLS uh, slate, you know, or whoever the schedule makers were, they knew what they were doing. They were like, listen, everyone's going to be talking soccer this weekend. Let's put a powerhouse schedule together for this weekend. And they did, and it, and I, I think it delivered. You had New England, the New England Revolution winning a dramatic comeback 3-2 win against the Red Bulls. Bruce Arena's team is rolling. And think about that. Matt Turner and Tejan Buchanan, two of the best players at the Gold Cup. And New England has been crushing it without them. Now imagine when they get those guys back. They're going to, I don't know who's stopping them. I got to be honest. 
I don't know who's stopping them. You have NYCFC pounding the Columbus crew four to one. And what is going on? NYCFC is just beating everybody up. And how about Keaton Parks, by the way? Keaton Parks balled out. Another player who people kind of have forgotten about or aren't talking about anymore as a national team option. He's, he's in there. He should be in there. He's a very talented midfielder. And if anything, maybe the James Sands success will open some eyes and say, hey, wait a minute. Keaton Parks plays for, uh, for NYCFC also. We should be looking at him. And I tell you, if you look, you'll see he is a quality player. And if he continues to play at a very high level, he should get a look with the national team. Another big game, Orlando City beating Atlanta United 3-2. And tough one for Atlanta when you think about it. Half of their defense is starting for the U.S. in the Gold Cup final. And they got to go to Orlando to beat Orlando. Tough one. But credit to Orlando. They needed it. They needed the win. It's been a, been a tough stretch of results for the Lions. And they get the big rivalry win. Nani with the winner. And Atlanta United, look, it's a tough year. They're still trying to figure out their coaching situation. I was kind of joking that Tata Martino is probably hitting up Darren Eels and Carlos Bocanegra right now because he doesn't, you know what, <laughs> who knows how long he's going to keep that Mexico job. But, uh, yeah, it's a, tough, it's a tough year for Atlanta. This is definitely a regrouping year. I don't, I don't see Paolo Fonseca, who's been linked to, to, to the head coaching job, I, whether it's Fonseca, whether Rob Valentino keeps it in the interim for the rest of the year, whoever's the coach. I just think this is a bit of a tough year. This is this is not this does not strike me as an Atlanta team that anyone's going to come in, put the pieces together, and make it a championship team or make it even a deep playoff team. I don't see it. I think they're going to have to regroup and then next year see what's going on, see who's left, see who they've sold. But it's tough. It's a t- it's it's it hasn't been a great year in Atlanta, and it's disappointing because I really thought, for one, I thought Gabriel Heinz was going to be a great hire, and number two, I thought the pieces that they brought in, they could have a pretty good team. And who knows, if you keep Robinson and Bello and you don't sell them, that's, I mean, that's, you know, right there, you're, you're a huge boost to your defense. Yeah, Brad Guzan back, by the way. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with Atlanta. But yeah, no, Orlando City needed that one. And uh, LA Galaxy smashed the Timbers 4-1. to one, And Julian Araujo, again, another player in who should be in the U.S. player pool with a monster game. And he's not the only one. Several Galaxy players. Obviously had great games. And again, the Galaxy, no Efrain Alvarez, no Sebastian Legette, obviously. And for them to beat the Timbers the way they did, that's, I mean, that's saying something. That's saying something. Another uh, another result, Miami beating uh, CF Montreal 2-1. to one. Uh, Gonzalo Higuain with a pair of goals. And look, it's been a rough year for Miami, no question. I don't know how Phil Neville still has a job, but... Is this the type of performance that starts to turn things around? I'm not a believer. But you always you have to start somewhere, and maybe this is the win that sparks something and turns things around and gives those Miami fans something to celebrate. In the last match I'll touch on, FC Dallas defeated Sporting Kansas City 2-1 to in Kansas City. Not an easy place to win. And how about Jesus Ferreira and Paxton Pomacal? With the goals. I know everyone was hoping Ricardo Pepe would score a goal. But look, having Paul McCall score and play well again, he's been on a roll. He's heating up. And I know there's there's that contingent of fans who think like, oh, he should be in the national team picture. He's good enough. He'll be there one day. He's starting to heat up. He's starting to, you know, put him, you know, play well. But he's going to need, he's going to need a, 
pretty good stretch of, of play, of, of, of good play, to really put himself back into the picture. He's, he's, he's a ways out of the U.S. national team picture, in my opinion. I think he and Ferreira, they're going to need to pretty much crush it the rest of this entire season, and then they'll you know be back in the picture for 2022 and you know beyond that. But they've lost a lot of ground to what is a ever-overflowing talent pool. And I think that wraps it up. I think I've covered everything. And again, apologies if this does sound different in terms of the sound quality. Um, this is this is kind of my temporary. Or this is my uh, my on the road audio setup that I've just completely you know MacGyvered. Uh, so I'm in my hotel in Las Vegas, uh, wrapping it up. I'm heading out on Tuesday. I, I stayed an extra I stayed an extra day in Vegas. I know, surprise, surprise. But you know what? I figured Monday I would want to. There'd be so much to do, so much to write about. I wouldn't want to be traveling. It has absolutely nothing to do with me wanting to gamble. Although, after I record and edit and publish this episode, I will be playing some poker. So, if you happen to see me at the poker tables, say hello. I'm not going to say where I am, because I still don't know where I'm going to play poker. But I will play poker somewhere. But um, that wraps it up. That wraps this episode up. And, um, obviously, as I told you all who listened last episode about the changes going on at SBI... Definitely stay tuned and uh, continue to read SBI. I'm going to definitely have as I'm just going to be trying to crank out as much U.S. men's national team post Gold Cup coverage as possible. And as much as this month of August, there's no games. There's going to be plenty to to dig into. And I'm going to be digging into a ton of it. And I'm already seeing we're already seeing a big jump in terms of, you know, uh, the traffic on SBI. And that's great to see and definitely keep keep coming on board and. I will be dropping, I will be unveiling my Patreon page very shortly. So if it's something that you're interested in, uh, definitely keep that in mind and consider it. Consider subscribing. As I said, I'll I'll have feature articles on there. I'll have videos on there and probably going to have some podcasts as well. Um, I don't don't plan to put the SBI show on the Patreon. I kind of want to keep it, keep it public, but I may... Uh, create another podcast or two that might not be as regular, but will be regular parts of the the Patreon setup. Um, one of them obviously will be an MLS podcast, and I've got an idea for another one that I'm, I won't get into yet. But you know what? There, there, there's stuff in the works. And uh, if you are someone who subscribes to Patreon pages or you know subscriptions in general. Hopefully it's another, hopefully it's, you know, I can make it, I can make the, my Patreon page a site worth subscribing to. And that's going to be the plan in August to really kind of show people what we can do. And, uh, ahead of what will be an interesting September when I unveil some, some more changes down the road. And it's all positive. It's all, I'm looking forward to it all. As soon as I get home from this Vegas trip, I'll, I'll be digging right into a lot of that stuff. So stay tuned for sure. But that's all for now. Thank you for listening. I'm Ivis Galarsip, checking in and checking out from Las Vegas. This is the SBI Show.